Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we continue our reflections into the richness of the book of Revelation, a book that has had us going deep into sacred scripture, that has had us going back into the Old Testament so as to better understand the New Testament and what it is, in fact, that Jesus Christ is fulfilling, not only in himself, but also in the church. And we should also add all the time that when Christ fulfills, he at once transforms, and we are called to share in this very transformation. And when we do so, we actually share in the transformation of history. And how important is that today, this evening, a day that is devoted to the election. My dear friends, we have a part to play in the evolution of history. What did John Paul II say? That history is not some series of chronological events, autonomous from man. No, it is an event of freedom. It is an event of man where we choose from one moment to the next and from one day to the next. Do we choose the good or the evil? That is what is before us each and every day. And certainly today, where do you stand? This is a question that God asks from us each and every day. So it is a personal decision that we make by taking up our cross and entering into our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And out from that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we bear witness, witness to truth and love and love and truth. Okay, before we get back into chapter 12, verse 12, I did receive a question on the heels of another question. Debbie Rosales joined me last week, and she used the phrase love letter. That sacred scripture is a love letter. And so then the question was posed, usually love letters are not so cryptic. I use that word cryptic, okay? Not so cryptic, not so mysterious, okay? I respond to that question, which is more of an observation really, right, with this. And this, I believe, is so important when it comes to all of sacred scripture and especially the book of Revelation. Yes, love letters are not usually so cryptic, but we have to appreciate the kind of love letter that we are dealing with. God is infinite mystery. That is to say, <laughs> he is inexhaustible on finite terms, on earthly terms. So we are constantly made to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And part of that quest to get to know who God is and the greatness of his love is to peel back the layers the same way we might do in our own relationships, and our own courtships, huh? Is there ever a time where you totally get to know your bride? Is there ever a time where you totally get to know your spouse? You've heard me share the story of the couple that has been married for 75 years, the elderly lady who was 92 years old. When she was asked the question, how did you do it? She said, we're still getting to know each other. We're still getting to know each other. The heart is a great mystery, a great mystery, and that heart belongs to God. And as it belongs to God, we are reminded that there is this constancy in the need to get to know one another, especially our spouses. You put that in the context of God and a relationship with God, you're going to always find yourself going deeper. And part of that going deeper 
is studying a book like the book of Revelation. Part of that study is making sure, again, you have a commentary in hand and you get to know the historical context. You've heard me talk about my Carmelite cloistered sister, who's a nun, right? She writes me lots of letters, inspired letters. Now, if I were to take these letters, put them in a treasure chest and bury that treasure chest, and if someone were to find that treasure chest 500 years from now and to read those letters, they certainly would be inspired, no doubt. But let me tell you something. You could not possibly appreciate the significance of what those letters are about unless you understood what is going on today, 2016. And I just mentioned the election, right? She writes a lot about that. The importance of going to prayer. The importance of the body of Christ interceding on behalf of a big election like this. If you read that letter 500 years from now and you don't regard what's going on in the world in 2016, you are not going to understand and appreciate her inspired words. Now, what does this have to do with sacred scripture? Well, we have to get to know the historical context and all the cultural milieu, if you will, of what is going on during the time of the written text. And of course, in this case, John the Evangelist. And this is why we have been so busy unpacking the historical context that surrounds this great book. And in saying that, I did want to talk a little bit more about the martyrs because as we wrapped up our time yesterday evening, I was going back into Williamson's commentary and I just thought, yeah, we need to get back into this a little bit. Uh, Peter Williamson in his Catholic commentary on sacred scripture for the book of Revelation has a teaching here where he talks about the first martyrs of the church. You've heard me talk about St. Polycarp. I want to go back into what Williamson has to say here as it relates to the first martyrs of the Church of Rome, so those martyrs that even predate St. Polycarp of Smyrna. And this comes to us from Tacitus in his work, The Annals. And again, this is regarding the first martyrs of the Church of Rome who were martyred under the rule of Nero. So this is Tacitus. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, in a most mischievous superstition. Thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Well said. <laughs> Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty then. Upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle, and was exhibiting his show in the circus, while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer, or stood aloft on a car, his chariot. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty, that they were being destroyed. 
Mm. Again, that is from the Roman historian Tacitus writing in 109 AD, who was saying up to that point how Nero prosecuted Christians to deflect blame from himself for the great fire of Rome that occurred in 64 AD. Now, what's interesting here is among those killed were Saints Peter and Paul, right? Nero's persecution is the only large-scale killing of Christians in the first century of which we have record, and it certainly left a deep impression on the Christian consciousness. The church remembers the victory of the first martyrs of the Church of Rome on June 30th. What more could we say about verse 11 before we jump into verse 12, specific to that phrase, the continuing effects of the blood of the Lamb? Again, Williamson has some, I think, insightful reflections for us. He says, Although we have been reconciled to God through Jesus' death on the cross, we know that the battle against evil in our lives does not end with conversion and baptism. What's going on there? What is he saying? Well, sometimes when we sin, the accuser of our brothers attacks us through guilt and self-condemnation, right? We need to distinguish the gracious voice of the Holy Spirit, which brings about conviction of sin, from the condemning voice of the evil one. This is a huge point for us in the the world of discernment, a word that means to come to understand, to, to bring distinction between one thing and another. Thanks be to God, brothers and sisters. We have a remedy for sin in the blood of the Lamb, which continues to to purify us as we persevere in following Christ. What does 1 John 1, verse 7 say? If we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. Remember what I said yesterday about the brethren, the brotherhood of Christ and the saints? Well, what did John just talk about? We have fellowship with one another when we walk in the blood of Christ that cleanses us. There are a variety of ways this cleansing can occur through our repenting and asking forgiveness as soon as we become conscious of sin, through the penitential rite at the beginning of Mass, which I've talked about, through receiving the body and blood of Christ in communion, and ultimately through the sacrament of reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, if feelings of guilt persist, we need to resist the devil and his lies. What does James 4 verse 7 say? Resist the devil and his lies. 1 Peter 5 9, stay sober and alert because Satan is prowling like a roaring lion. We must put our faith in the infinite value of Christ's sacrifice, remembering God's love for us, and knowing that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The opening verse from chapter 8 in Paul's letter to Rome, how important is that? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 reads, If we acknowledge our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from every wrongdoing. We must bear witness, my friends. Bear witness to the truth. If a truth is called a lie, does it ever cease to be a truth? No. If a lie is called a truth, does it ever cease to be a lie? No. Truth and lies are absolute. These things are unchanging. Someone can tell you a truth is a lie, but that doesn't change the essence of the truth. Someone can tell you that a lie is a truth, but that doesn't change the essence of a lie right? Because these things can be and ought to be objectively discerned. And we must bear witness to the great virtue of truthfulness. 
a foundational virtue alongside of humility, because if we do not have the truth, then what is it that we have? What is truth and what is the lie? This, this is an all-important question that has to be answered. Okay, let us return to chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoice then, O heaven, and you that dwell therein. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Mm. What is this business of rejoicing? Well, the heavens rejoice because Satan has been defeated. Yet a woe comes upon the earth because Satan is now angry at being cast down and looks to take out his frustration on man. However, his time is short. Now this can be understood as many commentaries get into, and certainly Michael Barber does here, in two different ways. First, the short time mentioned by John would be the time from Christ's ascension to the destruction of Jerusalem. We've talked about this, right? Like Israel, who wandered for 40 years in the desert, a 40-year period extends from Christ's resurrection to the destruction of the temple. Remember that the Greek word for generation, Ganoa, literally translates as 40 years. Therefore, those in Jerusalem must make a decision between Egypt and the new Jerusalem. Now, in another sense, the passage refers to the casting down of Satan after Christ has defeated him. The devil's time to tempt man will be cut short when the sun comes in glory and casts him into the lake of fire for eternal punishment. Until then, the devil has a what? Well, short time, right? in which he roams the earth trying to take as many people with him as possible. One does not have to decide between the different possible meanings. Since creation, as we've explored, Israel and the church all come together in the figure of the woman whom the devil targets. And I like the way Michael Barber puts it here. This imagery gives us a kind of panoramic view of salvation history, because that is the kind of view that God has. Okay, chapter 12, verses 13 to 14. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had borne the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half time. All right, verses 13 to 14. What could we say here? Once again, the woman. God's people symbolized in the person of Mary flee into the wilderness for protection, which at once recalls the Holy Family's flight into Egypt and Israel's exodus. Both events mark the deliverance of God's people from an evil, in particular from an evil king, in cases talked about Herod and Pharaoh. One might also include the church's flight to Pella in the year 70 A.D., we could say in a certain sense, the Exodus is a template for all the various ways God brings deliverance. Indeed, the wings of an eagle is frequently used in the Old Testament to describe the Exodus. If you were to go into Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 10 to 12, this is the description you find. That very language is also found in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. This became a symbol of God's protection of his people. And as I was talking about yesterday, you know, that the nourishment of God's people in the desert also evokes the imagery of God's people being fed on the manna, 
Well, what's the manna? Well, what, what did Jesus say in John 6? I am the new manna, the new manna of everlasting life. For this reason, the image may also be understood as a picture of the church fed by the blessed sacrament during her earthly pilgrimage. This is what the catechism teaches when it speaks of the Eucharist in paragraph 1419, that the Eucharist sustains our strength along the pilgrimage of this life and unites us even now to the church in heaven. And let us not be exclusive in how we think about pilgrimage. You know, we often think of a pilgrimage and we think about going to a particular holy destination for the purposes of revival or renewal. Yet, could we not say that the greatest pilgrimage we have to make sometimes, if not all the time, is from the mind to the heart, from the intellect to the will, that we might convert closer to the most sacred heart of Christ? Okay, Revelation chapter 12, verses 15 to 17. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river which the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Have you ever just read the book of Revelation and thought about what it would have been like to see what John was seeing? Goodness gracious, such an extraordinary vision. I know I haven't really talked about that end a whole lot, but man, oh man. Okay, there are multiple places in the Old Testament where the deliverance of God's people is described in terms of rescue from floodwaters. Undoubtedly, for most of us, this evokes the story of Noah's Ark, when God quite literally saved his people from the flood. Here, given the prominent use of the imagery from Exodus, two other passages come to mind. The first passage comes from the song that Moses sang when God delivered Israel through the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 15, verse 12. Thou didst stretch out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. I'm sure you hear that echoed in the verse we just read, right? And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river. The second is drawn from number 16. There, Korah and his sons rebel against Moses and seek to usurp his power. God vindicates Moses, however, when the earth, what? Swallows them up, sending them down to where but Sheol. This parallels John's account in Revelation since Sheol itself was believed to be the place of subterranean waters, right? In light of John's heavy dependence on Isaiah, we should also mention Isaiah 51, where God's promise of the new exodus is backed up by a reminder of the first one. The account there of Israel's redemption bears striking similarities to the rescue of the woman in Revelation 12. What do we read in Isaiah chapter 51, verse, verses 9 to 10? Was it not thou that didst pierce the dragon? Was it not thou that didst dry up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that didst make the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? So both Isaiah and Revelation speak of the defeat of the dragon and salvation from the waters. Of course, the woman who is the mother of all those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus, 
is the church and Mary, Mary being an icon of the church. So the reference here also evokes imagery of the new Eve, who is also called the mother of all the living. The fathers, as previously mentioned, understood this as referring to Mary. Okay, how can we apply everything that we've talked about in this great chapter 12 of the book of Revelation? Well, first and foremost, we have seen how Mary is an icon of the church. She is the model believer. When the angel comes to her and she says, yes, Mary gives herself completely to God in an act of self-giving love. That is to say, my dear friends, it is a love that is not calculated. It is a love that gives of itself totally and entirely. Everything she is from that moment on is given to God. What were her words? Let it be done to me according to your will. The great prayer. If only we, my dear friends, could pray this prayer each and every day. Do we not hold things back from God? <laughs> Mea culpa. We even try to make deals with God, do we not? You can have this and that, but there's this one thing. That one thing, that one's for me. I know I should give this to you, but hey, I'm giving you all these other things. Let me hold on to this one thing. And my dear friends, that one thing that you're holding on to is probably the first thing that you need to give to God. Remember, God answers our prayers in three ways. Yes, no, and not yet. In, in the no and not yet, we have to realize that the more we hold on to whatever it is that we are holding on to is going to be the very thing that keeps us from God. So let that one thing be the first thing. Okay? <laughs> what else could we say? Mary doesn't celebrate her grace-filled status. She doesn't sit around in Nazareth saying, well, now that I've given everything over to God, and now that I have become the queen mother, at the very least, I deserve to be treated as a queen. She doesn't do that. She doesn't go there. No, she continues to discern the ways in which God desires to use her for his own glory. And we are to do the same. You never look back and pat yourself on the shoulder. No, you do what Christ does in the Gospels. You move forward, moving on to the next city. So often, we look for the things we deserve. Do we not? So many ads will say, you deserve this or you deserve that. Treat yourself to a better life. But what does Mary do? How does she teach us to rebel against that? Well, she reverses that very logic. It's never about being served, but always in serving others. The visitation follows the Annunciation. And Mary's example of life-giving love, therefore, shows us that the greatest glory is not in being served, but in serving others. And so in this way, my friends, she is the model disciple for each and every one of us. She teaches us what it means to be predisposed. That is to say, as John Paul II would put it, what it means to live with that interior attitude of faith, that interior attitude of faith, which has an already existing relationship with God, but maybe one that is not quite yet in action, one that has not received the great mission or the great calling yet. There are moments in our lives where God calls us to do great things. Don't get me wrong. Any and everything that we do is called to be an offering to God. And in that sense, everything is a great act. 
insofar as it is an offering to God. But there are times in our lives where bigger decisions are to be made, where God calls us to do something extraordinary. Are we predisposed to say yes? Have we acquired that disposition, that interior attitude of faith that has made us ready to say yes to God at a moment's notice? That is the great question that is before us. We could say in so many ways that all of those little acts are part of the maturation, if you will, of our interior attitude of faith and part of the equation that helps us to being disposed, ready to act according to to God's will. We all have those decisions in our lives. And so ask yourself the question, my friends, is there something right now that God is asking you to do? And in the light of what we talked about in the outset, as it relates to how the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, if God is calling you out of a sinful pattern or a sinful behavior so as to listen to him better, so as to do something great, get out of that pattern of behavior. Will the good, will the yes, no matter what it is. And and understand, you can do it by the grace of God. Yes, you can do it. It will free you. We are bound so tightly by all of our attachments. Break free from those attachments, whatever they are, so that you are free to hear the word of God, yes, and respond to the word of God. And don't let today's political culture bog you down because we know who wins. We know who wins in the end. And his name is Jesus Christ. And if there's anything that this book, Revelation, tells us and teaches us, it is that. He wins. Yes, he is a fallen star. He is a fallen angel. But be assured, he has only a short time. So don't give in to his ways. Be firm, be strong, be faithful, and be a person of prayer. And in that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do give you just a special thanks and praise for the gift of this time that we've had together to continue to reflect into chapter 12 of the book Revelation, a chapter that has us considering so many various aspects of the Christian and Catholic faith so many exhortations to each and every one of us to become the best version of who you are calling us to be. Give us the grace to enter into your classroom of silence, that classroom where we can hear you so clearly that we might respond to what it is you are asking from us, which anywhere and everywhere and all the time is everything that we are. Amen. And in the light of what we've been praying, what we've been reading, we also pray the great St. Michael prayer. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in this day of battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke Satan, we humbly pray. And do thou, prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, cast in hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.